Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. One day after a jury in Minneapolis found Derek Chauvin guilty of the murder of George Floyd, officials in Washington were expressing relief that the convictions have lessened pressure for change, according to a report in Axios. Relieved Republican and Democratic officials privately acknowledged that an acquittal could have led to another wave of mass protest and created bipartisan pressure for police reform. Even those in Washington who are still enthusiastic about reform are pushing legislation like the George Floyd Act, which, as author and attorney Derricka Purnell has pointed out, would not have saved George Floyd's life. The bill would instead direct $750 million in federal funding to local police departments to better investigate the murders they commit. In the grand tradition of police reform in the United States, the bill would offer more guidelines to ignore, more funding to exploit, and more legitimacy for a fundamentally racist and murderous institution. Order is the primary concern of this government, which is why officials reliably conflate order with words like justice and safety. Sadly, decades of reform have only made injustice and the violent disposal of human beings more efficient and sophisticated, and more richly funded. Fortunately, Activists at the local level are offering a different vision, including in Minneapolis, where efforts to divert funding from the police department in favor of life-giving services significantly predate last summer's protests. Those efforts saw a surge in support last year, as local organizers with groups like Reclaim the Block grappled with the realities of upheaval and the pandemic, the complications of visibility, and the pursuit of the long-term goal of redirecting funds from the Minneapolis Police Department. In December, they saw a major victory when the Minneapolis City Council voted to cut $8 million from the city's $170 million police budget and divert the funds to mental health and violence prevention. This was a major victory for the movement to defund police and the product of fierce and committed organizing. So what can we learn from what they accomplished? In today's episode, we will be hearing from two organizers with Reclaim the Block, a grassroots coalition that has been pressuring the city of Minneapolis to divest from policing and invest in alternatives since 2018. Those organizers, Jonathan Stiegel and D.A. Bullock, will share their reflections on the verdict and their journey during the last year and talk about what they hope will happen next. I was able to speak with Jonathan and D.A. only a couple of days after the verdict last week, and I am grateful they were able to make the time amid everything they've been up against. I hope you all will hear what they have to say and contemplate what we need to do in the coming days and weeks, because officials are counting on our complacency. They are betting that this verdict will slow our momentum and quiet our cries for justice. But what happens next isn't up to them. It's up to us. Today's guests are Minneapolis organizers Jonathan Stiegel and D.A. Bullock. Jonathan is a designer, a coder, and a faith-rooted organizer and abolitionist. He is a core team member of Reclaim the Block and a board member of the Center for Prophetic Imagination, an organization that integrates spiritual formation, political action, and education. D.A. Bullock is a writer, an award-winning filmmaker, and a member of the Reclaim the Block communications team. Jonathan and D.A., thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So this has been a momentous week. How are you both doing? I'm feeling, I still feel the tension of the moment. I know we had a lot of ebb and flow. So I'm literally sitting in a studio across the street from Dante Wright's funeral. So I'm also feeling a great deal of, of weight around that. Yeah, I resonate with that. I'm I'm doing, you know, it's I'm doing okay. My 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 daughter has been home the last couple of days because Minneapolis closed the, the public schools for or moved the public schools to virtual learning at home. You know? So <laughs> been dealing with that and then just the um just the weird tension of how everybody wants to feel in, in the city and how how different everyone's feelings are and you know, wanting to validate those, but also, you know. As Miriam says, abolition is not about our feelings. And yet they are important. <laughs> yes. 
Um, I do want to ask how your team and your community are doing in the wake of the Chauvin verdict. I know this has been a heavy time and that while a lot of people are satisfied with the outcome of the trial, there's still a lot of complexity, grief, and unaddressed harm to work through, not to mention exhaustion. Yeah, I think we're still resolute and, and really focused on the the ultimate goal and know that there is quite a bit of work to do and quite a bit of work to do in the short term and the long term. So I feel like our team is certainly focused, but I, I've found that I think the community at large is still focused as well, which I think is encouraging. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I feel like um, you know, for us as a, as a group, I, I think that um, you know, having kind of abolitionist values at our core, kind of, it gives us a, something to hold on to, I think, that at least I, I don't think I would have otherwise in these, these types of moments. Well, I am so glad that you all have each other and that your community has groups like Reclaim the Block and Black Visions Collective who are attending to this moment. Now, I want to briefly take us back in time because I want to talk about where we go from here. But to do that, I think people need to understand a little bit more about the journey you all have been on. I know Reclaim the Block kicked off its work back in 2018, organizing to move money from the Minneapolis Police Department into other areas of the city's budget. And I know you all had some success with that in 2019, when the city council voted to move $240,000 from the police budget and into the Office of Violence Prevention, which is a broad-reaching office that has the ability to fund community services in the name of violence prevention. Then when the pandemic hit, I know you joined with other abolitionist organizations like the Red Nation, Black Visions Collective, who I know are a major anchor for you all, Survived and Punished, and the National Lawyers Guild, and many others in endorsing a platform created by Critical Resistance that I think everyone should check out that's called An Abolitionist Platform Toward Healthy Communities Now and Beyond COVID-19. So this was a time when many of us were trying to adapt our organizing to make demands that made sense for our communities amid a pandemic, to get mutual aid off the ground, and then George Floyd's murder was caught on film, and there was an uprising in your community, and people across the country also felt called to action. And in the middle of all that, as people were trying to figure out how to join in or show support, a whole lot of people were suddenly looking to you all. Can you say a bit about what that was like? Yeah, we had a lot of visibility at that point. And then we, we made some demands, you know, hey, city council, you should, you know, you're going to make a budget cut from the pandemic and your police department just just killed George Floyd in front of the world. So let's let's take some money out of the that police budget again. And, you know, we did, we, um, we just set a demands. We you know, did a, I don't even remember what kind of direct action, small thing. And then, uh, you know, the city just kind of, as you, as you know, kind of, <laughs> arose around us and you know we were we weren't um organizing direct actions in mass at that point um a lot of us were out in the streets with with you know our community but we weren't we weren't doing that type of organizing we were you know trying to push the city council and trying to figure out what kind of things we could win um in an abolitionist lens at that point but just being in that contest we think you made that demand to defund NPD to abolish NPD uh, stick in a way that it hadn't in previous, uh, you know, certainly George Floyd wasn't the first person he has publicly killed and wasn't the first time that people have, have risen up um, in significant ways, but that the demand has always been something different. And so that's, that, that was how we, we uh, things really shifted for us at that point. We got a lot of, you know, <laughs> a lot of local attention, a lot of national attention, a lot of you know, donations and resources. And we, we had to figure out what to do with those things and how to, how to, um, I think how to handle those things in, in ways that that were in according with our values. And you know, then we had to you know, figure out, are we going to hire people? Or what are we, how are we going to do that? How are we going to become something other than this group of you know, 10 to 15 or however many people sitting in the living room into to something else? Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, for me, it was before I was uh, officially part of the team. So um, during that time, I was still relying, because I'm a filmmaker, first and foremost, um, you know, I, I was using a story-based strategy to sort of bring people along in political education about, you know, 
the possibility of defunding our police department and and the ultimate possibility of abolition, but bringing people along through story form and relying a lot on sort of the activity and information that Reclaim the Block was was putting out and, and Black Visions was putting out and developing a, a, um, a sensibility, you know, a, a story sensibility in the in the city itself, not, not necessarily knowing that something would happen like this, but kind of knowing that something would happen like this, just because we have a, a really distinct history of, of seeing police violence play out in a really dramatic way uh, within our communities. So I think, you know, a lot of my work being a storyteller was about tying those stories together, those, those histories, those past stories together, but also, you know, tying that to the imagination of, of what was possible. And I think that was, that was feeding into a lot of the work that was going on before George Floyd was killed. And I think that was part of the, the thing that made the, the spark so instantaneous, that made it so combustible that made it so um, powerful um, that, you know, people were ready to, to go in the streets and, and make themselves heard. And, I, you know, I think that's, that's a powerful thing that was happening around the country, but it was certainly happening here. And all of this, of course, happening amid the pandemic, which had created a huge need for mutual aid and organizing specific to that crisis as well. So having been vouched for online by a number of abolitionist groups, you all saw a lot of donations. How did you all handle getting that influx of resources at such a time of great need? And how did you decide how to disperse and deploy those resources? Yeah, um, at first, we, 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 I don't think any of us <laughs> expected any of that, anything like that to happen. And so, you know, it took us, a, I think, a couple of weeks. And then we were like, we should turn off our donation link. And so we we turned off all of our donation links and we made a list of places that um, we we wanted people to donate local places that we wanted people to donate to instead that was kind of the first i think the first action that we took and we put i think at least we tried to focus a lot on you know people that were doing emergency crisis response uh right in that time period um you know some of them would be protest support groups some of them were you know uh helping black businesses recover just on and anything in between really whether we ideologically agree with them or not we put them on the list that they were doing direct mutual aid uh, or relief support and that link you know it was just a google doc we didn't make a website before we got internet famous and so uh so we just made a google doc and and it it kind of got everywhere It, uh, it was on the daily show you know trevor noah said it it got a lot of uh attention we we don't know any Certainly, we don't know what people got out of it, but we uh, we put it out there as much as we could, and and then we started, you know, trying to make a plan for kind of uh, what to do with with the with the money that we had and how to be accountable with it. And you know, we we um, worked with Black Visions. You know, the the way it worked was all of the money was was kind of separate um, buckets, but it ultimately went to the same fiscal sponsor that, that Black Visions has. And so you know, we made um, kind of a short, a immediate term plan to just give away uh, mutual aid requests to anybody. I mean, first come, first serve, basically, to people who, who needed uh, mutual aid, especially if it was from um, things that happened during the uprising or, uh, or I guess, pandemic related. And, and I, don't, I don't remember exactly how much we distributed from that. It was more than a million dollars uh, within you know, a few weeks, maybe a month. And at that point, as I understand it, Black Visions Collective partnered with the nonprofit Nexus to create the Transformative Black-Led Movement Fund to determine how to distribute $3.1 million that your groups had raised to Black people and Black-led groups in Minneapolis. And I was really moved when I learned about this process because I have seen what happens many times in these sort of highly energetic movement moments where the public becomes passionate and a lot of donations come in and the money gets concentrated in one or two places. And there are always questions among people in communities about where it should go and how it should be deconsolidated. 
oftentimes the money does not get deconsolidated and some organizations just wind up with very large sums of money while other groups that people maybe hadn't heard about don't get funding. And sometimes money does get redistributed, but only after a lot of extended drama and on very acrimonious terms. What you all did here and the process that Black Vision sort of co-led here of creating a container for decisions about a just redistribution led by Black people without any gatekeeping from your group, I just find it very powerful. Yeah, and I was on the committee that was formed formed out of just uh, community members, Black community members who um, were willing to come together and, and sort of talk about how we is basically how we would do philanthropy if we just had money at our disposal and that was what what the committee was and that was actually my first sort of teaming or partnering with reclaim the block and black visions and so i I saw it from a community member standpoint um was this extraordinary opportunity uh, to just give away money like to really give it directly to folks and not have them jumping through hoops uh, uh a great, I don't even know if it was about half of the money or, or close to half of the money was was direct mutual aid, again, to anyone who needed it, especially around issues around the uprising. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, it was, it was like a real time ability for us as, you know, members of the black community to, to create our own sort of redistribution of, of resources. And that, you know, it was extraordinary. I've, I've never been a part of anything quite like that before in my lifetime. And it, and it actually made me think about a lot of the ways that the, the philanthropic and nonprofit industry are, are built in black communities where they, where they keep you beholden to a certain way of accessing resources and continually having to go back to that ask and refining that ask and making yourself worthy and all those kind of things where whereas this was was really just about seeing each other as neighbors as community members and saying like what do you need what do you need to be whole and let's let's try to do our best to take care of that Well, I hope other groups are paying attention to that experiment and that we see more experiments like it in these moments. I was also really impressed with Reclaim the Block's Train the Trainers effort around your most recent budget battle to reduce the Minneapolis Police Department budget. Can you say a bit about that effort? We were just like, if you're a group, you know, whether you're official in some way or not, you want to come to these things. Um, We'll train you in how to testify for budget demands that you have that align with ours. Um, How do you get your people to show up to these hearings, especially since they're virtual? How do you get around the accessibility barriers if they exist? And how do you craft a testimony so that you don't get cut off in the middle of a call or whatever? You know, um, yeah, just trying to bring people into that process in a way that that made it transparent and accessible as much as we could. And also, from that, at least my my understanding was we also used a lot of those uh, connections to build. Last year, we called it uh, the people's budget. And that was kind of what we were having people testify in favor of. Um, in in our our hope for the 2021 budget was that the city would uh, adopt that. And it was, I don't know, it's probably a $50 million MPD cut. And, and we worked together with those those other uh, folks to, to decide where that money would go. And you know, of course, we didn't get that. That was our, our big uh, push, and then the city ended up taking, you know, eight million or whatever it was. But that was kind of how we built, uh, how we did those train the trainers. We we would hold them over Zoom, and people would come, and we teach them how to do how to how to support those things, and how to craft their own demands, and then kind of ultimately, hopefully, bring them back into what we were all advocating for together. And I would say, you know, I I, I think it's resonant because it's a a simple, it's a simple iterative process, meaning like the steps to get involved, whether you have been doing this work forever or you just sort of, it just came across your your consciousness, you can plug into it and, and be assured that you, you know, you can feel strongly about your sense of, of how you want to express yourself and, and how you want to 
do that that engagement process with the city because I think that's, that's one of it's been one of the impediments of you know normal everyday residents just getting involved is they feel like it's all something that happens over there with experts and lobbyists and people who know what they're doing and I, I would say you know even from my own personal experience it, it wasn't any of that it was very accessible it was very much like yeah this is this is easy for me to to plug into and then it's easy for me to look to even evolve it to fit sort of the way I want to make my own statement and, and that kind of thing so and then our, from there we were, we are hopeless that those the organizations that came you know who've sent representatives to those those uh, trainings we did would take it back to their bases, you know, the, the say tools and and even the black black visions would take it to their larger base and uh, the surge chapter would take it to their larger base and you know, the, the various whatever organizations would come would would bring that information to their bases and make it more accessible to those folks. I love that. And I love that you all were arming people up with a skill that can continue to be unpacked in various fights and in various efforts that folks will be enacting in your city. And I just think that's beautiful. And in this case, you all saw a huge victory with the city council voting in December to divert nearly $8 million from the proposed police budget toward the city's Office of Violence Prevention, which is just such a phenomenal win. And I am looking forward to seeing how all of that plays out. But circling back to the moment we're in, there's been a lot of talk about how this verdict was not justice. Some people are saying it's not justice, but it is accountability. And I strongly disagree with that because accountability is active and participatory and even potentially transformational. And I don't think we should pretend that the state offers people that via the carceral system. We offer people that when we organize peace circles and other processes and containers for accountability in our communities. And I think it's dangerous anytime we allow the state to co-opt the work we do in community and claim that restoration or transformation or accountability is what they are offering us when they cage, punish, and surveil people. Because those co-options are real. And they have real-world consequences, and they will take us up on the opportunity to co-opt every time. What we have here, to whatever extent it plays out, is punishment. And people have varying opinions about how valuable or satisfying that is. People may find solace in it. But we seem to have consensus among like-minded people that this punishment is not justice, and that justice is what the public deserves. So what does justice look like? You want to go first? Yeah. Oh, sure. So, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people who are not, you know, very well versed in this movement. So, you know, they, they don't necessarily parse terms, but I, you know, I, I kind of break it down in a common sense way and ask them what justice looks like to them. And I'm talking about people who live in my neighborhood. I'm talking about other black folks that I've been having this conversation with. And, and the thing that comes up for them time and time again is, uh, I, I wanna guarantee that this will never happen to me, my son, to anybody I know, anybody that looks like me ever again. And then, you know, ultimately we, we walk down that path and come to the conclusion that the only way we can guarantee justice is to remove ourselves from this entire system as it exists right now. And so, a couple of things happen in those conversations for me and, and for the person I'm having that conversation with is it, it becomes more of a logical step and it's not a radical sort of unimaginable thing. It's, it's actually the, the logical step toward what we want, which is, which is justice, which is we don't want to deal with this police system. We don't want to be a victim of it ever again which means we, we cannot interact with it. Uh, we cannot try to figure out a way to work with it around the margins and make it marginally different. Um, we have to remove ourselves from that system. And, and you know, then we start to think about like all the ways that carceral system or that police system is intertwined into our lives and thinking about all the ways that really influences our quality of life. So 
I think, you know, terms like justice, I think because they're used so much by the system, we have a criminal justice system. I, I try to like move away from them almost immediately anyway, and start talking to people about like, like what, what is your heart's desire about how your, your son is, is being raised and he's gonna come up and, and what, what do you see for his future? Like what's, if you were painting a picture of his future, what does that look like? It doesn't look like somebody, some armed person having control over you and him and, and your movements. It looks like freedom. It looks like ability to thrive. It looks like having all your needs met. It looks like a lot of things, but it, it never looks like, yeah, I wanna have a slightly better way to call somebody with a gun to come to my house. Um, somebody I don't know. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I think we all know what real justice looks like because we're all, you know, human beings living in this social contract. And, and I think that's, that's where I, I'm generally trying to have most of my conversations, not, not keeping them really locked in, in nuances around terminologies because that's, that's why I think people got it all in a bunch about defund or abolition or whatever that is. And I, I, you know, I'm having these conversations with people and I'm like, whatever, I, well, let's not even talk about that. Like, what do you want for your son's future? Tell me, paint the picture for me. And then when they paint that picture for me, I'm saying, yeah, you know what? That's an abolitionist future. We're talking about the same thing. So let's, let's get down to this work of it. So I, I feel the same way about justice we know that, you know, my, my neighbors, we know we're not going to find that in any system that exists right now. So we started immediately talking about, well, what are we, what are we building towards? I really appreciate that a lot, D. I, I, I think I tend to end up, I, I do end up in different conversations and I, I, I do end up a lot of times um, trying to get people to be precise about which which thing that it is that they're talking about. You know, there were there were a lot of those memes that were like, you know, this isn't justice, this is accountability. And and I I wanted to kind of for those folks who who are in my life who are really into that, I, I wanted to kind of valid, validate that like, you know, a year ago, I think a lot of people, a lot more people would have said, oh, we got some justice. And so it's not insignificant that they that they that they didn't want to use that word. For, for what happened with the verdict. So I, I did want to, to recognize that, but also say, no, that you've, you've kind of just shifted this punishment thing over to the word accountability. And these are three different words that we're talking about, and that's important. Um, you know, I found obviously things that you have to say, things that Marianne has to say, <laughs> super helpful um, in helping parse through those things. And I think, you know, in my personal conversations, I think a lot of people found that that helpful, at least to wrestle with the kind of what it is that they're feeling. You know, what is it that, um, you know, even if we do feel like punishment is a good thing, what do we do with that information? <laughs> I don't think most of us like to um, think of ourselves as punishing people, although we live in a very, we, we live in a punishment-full society. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways we try to cover over that. And I wanted to kind of get it Good at that. Uh, I, I feel like Marianne does a really good job at, at that when she talks about, you know, our community. Um, if we have a set of communal values that are that are based in justice, then they can hold us up when we can't hold ourselves up. I, I don't know if those are the exact types of words that you, she uses, but that's kind of how I how I hear them. And so that's kind of how I take it when when I'm in those those conversations. I think as we claim the block, we've uh, we've always. I think we've always tried to put forward the idea that that justice is when people have um, things that they need, when they have when they have housing that is safe that they can afford, when they have you know a clean environment that they can be in relationship with, when they have worker protection, when they're not getting wage theft, when they you know all the all the things that we that we've often had people organize with us to you know say yes, we would like the money from the police because it will make us safe if we have the things that we build. And I guess the only other thing I would say is, uh, I don't remember how late in the 2020 it was, but we were on a call, a group call, and we were watching 
I think it was with, with Mimi Kim and we were watching this video that the Intercept had put out, you know, it was called Message from the Future, uh, The Years of Repair. And, you know, whoever was facilitating was like, you know, y'all don't get the chance to think very much about 20 years in the future or, you know, further into the future than like, you know, two weeks. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the video was was just kind of creating this this picture, it was literally an animated picture. You've probably maybe seen it. Of just like here's here's what happens when um, you know the last prison closes, or when uh, you know the, the pollinators come back. There, there are all these images of kind of the world that movements could build, and 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 they would go through. Well, here's how the movements got repressed, and here's how they rose up, and here's how the essential workers rose up, and you know all of these these images that were very beautiful. And I I literally cried in the Zoom call watching this video, and I think about it often uh, still when I think about that. I am just going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news publication that has thus far survived the decimation of independent news. But we can't create independent news on a corporate landscape without help from readers and listeners like you. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider heading to truthout.org to make a donation today. I would agree that it's a very positive development that a lot of people don't consider this verdict justice. And that while a lot of people may have found some solace in this moment, they are not satisfied with this outcome. And I do think that's progress. I also loved what you had to say, DA, because I like the idea of talking to people about what they want and about what their hearts desire for their families, for their communities, as a way of centering that conversation, because the word justice is very tied up and punishment in this system for a lot of people. And I was just talking with Ruthie Gilmore the other day about how even the word freedom is really mixed up with the system in ways that can be really damaging sometimes. That sometimes we say freedom when what we mean is access to the ability to harm other people in the ways that we've been harmed, or to access forms of state violence being enacted in ways that we want them enacted. So I really like this idea of talking to people about what it is that they need and what it would take for people to live freely and safely and create safety in their communities. And absolutely, that calls for abolition and imagining abolition. One thing that I have seen that I find really unfortunate lately is some people using George Floyd as a new standard by which to judge people who are killed by the police. In cases like Adam Toledo's, I see people saying, this was not a George Floyd situation, because the murder of George Floyd, they argue, was a clean-cut case of police brutality, and the kind of thing we should all clearly object to, whereas other cases, like Adam's, they say, are just the police doing their jobs. We also see that kind of exceptionalization happening among public officials, like Nancy Pelosi, who in the wake of the verdict said, Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. Now, as many people have pointed out, George Floyd did not sacrifice himself for anything because he did not choose his fate. It was chosen for him by a cop who murdered him. But this valorization, in my mind, is part of a larger effort to divide the George Floyd case from the everyday violence of policing. And I think they are pushing that idea as a matter of structural maintenance, that he's not like Adam Toledo or Micaiah Bryant or others who are killed by police. He's a hallowed saint who sacrificed himself for our sins, allowing us to punish his killer, making our country magically a more just place. What are your thoughts on this exceptionalization we are witnessing? I think it plays right into the vast mythological, magical thinking of how people form their their vision of what policing actually is versus uh, what it would actually actually practically is like in our lifetime. And, wh and what I mean by that is um, it's, it's easy for people at this point to play into the mythology, to play into the magical thinking that, like you said, like George Floyd was an exceptional case Derek Chauvin was an exceptionally evil individual. And then it sort of absolves everybody from really like looking at practically 
what is right in front of their face, you know? Again, so that's why I always try to like bring people back from um, the theoretical to actually what they actually experience in their own lifetime, right? Um, I, I, I talk to people and ask them all the time, like you think about the times when you were most in peril in your lifetime. And this, this for me uh, personally as well, I grew up on the South side of Chicago and I thought back at the times when I was in peril I was I was robbed at gunpoint at one point in the south on the south side of Chicago, and at no point did some heroic figure in a uniform come and save me. So that that's the first sort of stripping down of this this mythology, and asking ourselves: Is there any instance where the introduction of of that force? has actually been helpful in our lives, like, like saving us in a, in a time of peril or uh, changing the trajectory of, of a bad situation. And you know, most, most often when I talk to people from their personal experience, nobody has ever had that experience of, of, of the mythology. Nobody's had the experience of that, that magical thinking that aligns you with an idea that you need them to come in and make these split second decisions because they're always under this constant danger and they're always facing these extraordinary threats. And then you start to just relate it to, again, like the practical nature of, of what they see in front of them, which is mostly uh, police officers who you know show up after something happens and they tape off the, the, the block and they stand around and they they kibitz with one another and they get on their phone. And I mean, like when you, when you see this, you see this in the community and you realize um, all these exceptions that are being made to keep that structure in place are based on a myth. They're not based on the reality. They're, they're, based, they're based on a magical thinking that this thing is somehow valuable, that it's gonna save your life one day. When, when actually it's not, I mean, and I, I think, that's a hard thing for people to, to face when sort of that has just been the standard to believe in the magic all your life. So um, I feel like, you know, obviously systems use that to their advantage and as self-preservation. And we're seeing that here. There, there's nothing exceptional about the violence that was perpetrated on George Floyd, it happens all the time. In fact, you know, MPD does it all the time. They did it during the trial on, on tape. Uh, MPD officers put their knees on the neck of a, of, um, a resident who was, was trying to uh, stand up for some a houseless encampment here near, near where I live. So I, I think, you know, if people really took a, honest look at the practical way they live their lives and what they see right in front of them. It, it has to conflict with that magical thinking. It has to conflict with that exceptionalism that, that is, that's trying to be uh, sold to them. Yeah, I think that, that's right. I think we've always tried to, tried to use that narrative that, that um, you know, what, what happened to George Floyd is not, uh, is not exceptional. MPD, yeah, like I said, MPD does this this all the time, even the you know the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act wouldn't wouldn't have saved George Floyd. The things that they think are so exceptional to to get rid of would wouldn't have wouldn't have helped him. And it you know this also brings me back. I remember um, you know a few years ago there was a you know an online conversation about you know what if what if Black Lives Matter as a movement had focused more on Tamir Rice than Michael Brown. You know, maybe it would have had a better public perception or something. And then, you know, the man who killed Tamir Rice got off as well. And so, you know, nobody, nobody has ever, or almost never, is anybody exceptional enough to to make that work, unless you know there's a massive uprising, and then maybe the system will will decide, yeah, we can we can throw away that one, that cop, even though the practices are not exceptional. 
I, I see the state really trying to reinforce standards of innocence. Like during the trial, I remember people making a big deal about how we needed to call it the Chauvin trial and not the George Floyd trial because it was Derek Chauvin who was on trial and not George Floyd. And I remember thinking like, yes, let's call it that. But also let's name that George Floyd really is on trial because the victims of police shootings are always on trial. And I don't think we should pretend that the system operates outside that reality. In, in truth, this society puts people on trial in the news and in popular discourse the moment they are killed by a cop. It's always a question of whether they were innocent enough to live, which is appalling because we are usually talking about people who live in a context where they have already been deemed disposable for the sake of order because people do all kinds of things in the disaster zone of late capitalism, like good, bad, and indifferent. Some people, like police, get to act with relative impunity some people, like affluent white people, get to act with a low degree of consequence. And some people, like black people, are subject to execution for virtually any offense or even no offense at all. So of course people living within zones of disposability and organized abandonment are sometimes going to do things that we find troubling and even cause very real harm. But when we position the police who enforce the very inequality that generates so much harm as fundamentally legitimate in their actions unless there is a 9 minute and 29 second video of them slowly killing a completely helpless unarmed person, we are maintaining those dynamics. And I don't think we should be structural maintenance workers. I, I think when people say, but Adam Toledo was running from the cops at 2am and he had been armed that night, I think we should ask, but why? And not let neoliberal mayors like Lori Lightfoot get away with saying things like, the social safety net failed this child when she is the one refusing to fund that safety net and instead shuffling millions of dollars into the hands of the police department that killed that child every chance she gets. I, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and it, it makes me think about, you know, what, what are our, our ultimate goals? Is it to sort of have more distinctions between what is so-called justified killings of people or, or to just not have killings of people, right? Like, so, so, you know, I think people need to always be able to take a step back and, and ask them when, when they're steadily trying to find those, carve out those exceptions for police to, to continue their activity, you know, I'm always asking them why, like, why do you need them to have a justified reason for killing someone? Like, what, why, why is that your desire? Or is your desire that people are not getting killed anymore? Like, so, so there are some distinct choices that we, we need to make as, as people who are living together about what we want to, we don't want, like you said, we don't want maintenance of a sort of system where we're all at each other's throat, potentially mistrusting of, of one another in a, in a sort of fight for limited things, right? Is that, is that our desire or is our desire that everybody's feeling pretty good about their life, their potential, the things that could happen, they're feeling hopeful, you know, and they're, and they're ready to, to do things that, that help one another and they're ready to do things to su support one another because they're not in that competition for like survival, right? And then, you know, ask ourselves, well, how, well, how, do, how do the police, what part do they play in that? Do they alleviate and eliminate that doggy dog thing or do they sort of exacerbate that or maintain it? you know, in order to keep themselves in their position of, of getting that budget every year. And those, those kind of questions are really, they're pretty straightforward. You don't have to know a lot about the philosophy of, of you know, you don't have to know a lot about economics or, or, or a lot of these other things that you may learn in the um, higher education institutions to answer common sense questions about how you're living and why and why you're making the decisions. Um, I, you know, I had a conversation with a, one of our uh, council members and, and she had to admit to me 
that that police don't uh, keep us safe. And but but her admission of that was was sort of after like a long conversation, and we had to, to like talk through it. And it was like begrudgingly to admit a certain thing that was that was pretty pretty much common sense and common knowledge in our in our community. And I just found that fascinating that she did so much work in order to support that, that non-common sense. Um, so it, it, you know, it just, it just fascinates me how much, how much we put into supporting something that is, uh, wouldn't support itself without you know, all our buttress that we put up with our, our thought process. Yeah, I think that's great. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. Absolutely. I think one of our biggest stumbling blocks is this baseline legitimacy that we lend to the police, in spite of all evidence, right? Like in Chicago, it's not just activists who have documented the hell out of the fact that the Chicago police are racist and sexually abusive and that they murder and torture people. The United Nations has spoken to this. The Department of Justice has documented this thoroughly. And yet people feel like they have to lend them this baseline legitimacy when they show up and intercede in a situation. It's been heartbreaking to watch that conversation around the case of Micaiah Bryant because we have people watching this tape and mass and critiquing this situation, the death of this child, as though what she was doing in those moments decided her fate. When in reality, a whole confluence of violent structural forces, all of them anti-black, led to that cop gunning her down. And I hope that's something that people are willing to explore and think about in this moment. We don't have to assume the legitimacy of the police. We don't have to critique videos and narratives according to their little prescribed set of policies that supposedly make it okay for them to hurt people. We can imagine how things should be and build demands around that. We can ask what would have actually given someone a chance to survive and to thrive, and we can demand that. So all of that said, in an immediate strategic sense, what are you hoping people will do in the wake of this verdict? And do you have any asks for our listeners? You want to go first, DA? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you the same thing. I think immediately, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm right across the street from Dante Wright's funeral as we speak. So I, I can't help but, you know, just ask that, that people uh, not, it, it's okay to, you know, have, have the human sensibility of, of, of just breathing and exhaling. And I understand that because I did it myself uh, once this verdict happened. But, you know, pretty soon after that, I, I was thinking about Dante Wright. I was thinking about everyone who we need to just not allow for the system to just offer us this up as something that it is not. And we don't have to accept that. We, we, we know what we know, and we know that there is nothing that happened in this particular case, guilt or innocence, verdict or not, Derek Chauvin going to be punished off somewhere that is going to change material, our material condition of living tomorrow with these police departments in our, in our cities. We know that for a fact. So our next steps should be appropriate to that fact, not appropriate again to the sort of romanticism of, wow, we have this conviction. Now the world has changed. Now it's, you know, we have a new, new way pass forward, which is a lot, a lot of people are trying to sell that to you currently. That, that's, you know, they took that first opportunity to make sure you knew that we're in a, we're in a brave new world now, which is a lie. You know I mean? We know that we know, again, this is like, we know what we know. We know it is what is right in front of us. And we know the history. You know, the, the conviction of, of Van Dyke for Laquan McDonald's murder, you know, the next day in Chicago, 
everybody, you could talk to all the brothers on the south side and the, the west side, and they would tell you it was business as usual with the police. And, and we know that again from our own experiences. So I would say, you know, in the short term, the first step is to uh, just make sure you are guarded and, and just aware against the forces, the rhetorical forces that are gonna come to tell you, don't believe your lying eyes and your lying experience, believe what we're telling you that this is a new day. It's not a new day. You know, we're, we're back to work on the next day. And um, there are some distinct things that are happening within our city that we know can really change the potential of, of how we are taking this step process and, and removing the Minneapolis Police Department from our midst. And one of them is we have a charter, we have a constitution of our city that mandates that we have them amongst us. So we know one of the first steps that we have to do in the short term is to, to change that constitution of our city, change that charter. Um, and I know that that's something a lot of people are focused on and, and dedicated toward because, you know, without that, obviously we cannot, we can't shift certain structural things without that very start. You know, it's like the key opening up the, the lock that, that allows us to open up the door. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, it, yeah, the immediate thing is to, I feel like it's to, to remember that the system isn't isn't this system isn't going to reform itself. It's not going to give us a new possibility. We have to we have to create that together ourselves. Yeah, and and the in Minneapolis kind of one of the next immediate steps is you know in in November um, that ballot amendment to to take MPD out of the charter. You know, hopefully go before the voters and they can hopefully we'll have done enough work by then that they they understand why this is a good thing. What it what and the kind of possibilities that it does open up. Yeah, and even that it it doesn't necessarily do anything on its own. It takes away some some barriers, but then it it, it puts that possibility kind of in our hands again as as organizers, as as people that um, that care about what a what a just safe city looks like, we are able to see that that safety and policing are not the same things, and then to figure out what what that means. Well, this has been a great conversation, and I want to thank you both with my whole heart for joining us today and to really thank you for all that you do. Thank you for having us. I've, I never miss an episode, so it's an honor to, to hear you. Yes, thank you, Kelly. Thank you for everything you do. I'm, I'm a big fan and supporter, and I'm so happy that we're all out here together you know, as fam doing this work. Absolutely. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.